Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 14 all the way through verse 41. So it's a, it's a big chunk, but uh, just to give you some context so you follow along as I read, um, you know, as Fred, I should say Pastor Fred from now on, right? As Pastor Fred preached last week, he, he just uh, did his uh, exams. He's on his way to getting ordained, so hopefully October that'll happen so uh, we can have a, a celebration. Um, but as, uh, as Pastor Fred uh, preached last week, uh, what had happened is the Holy Spirit came, uh, some strange things happened, and now this is Peter preaching a sermon explaining what happened, Okay. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But since this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of, of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Before therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word 
were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this word would penetrate our hearts, and in a similar fashion, that we would be cut to the heart um, just by remembering the gospel of Jesus, and you would lead us uh, to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going through a, a series on the book of Acts, and I'm hoping that we get at least two things out of this series. Uh, first, I, I do hope that collectively God does convict us about the power of the Holy Spirit and the reality of the Holy Spirit in the church today. And you know, I, I've said like this so much in the past, but uh, especially in the West, our culture is very secular, and so the default is not to uh, live in view of spiritual realities, uh, but to more live in uh, material realities. So we kind of have to fight against that. And remember, God in the person of the Holy Spirit is present uh, in the church today. Second, I hope that God also gives us a greater sense that collectively, we as, uh, as the church, we are part of his mission to call all people and all nations to himself. Okay? So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage. And this passage is interesting because it's actually the very first sermon that was preached uh, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, as a pastor, uh, preaching is like one of those skills that get a lot of attention. And <clears throat> I, think, I think most pastors want to be good preachers and preach well. So especially when you're young in ministry and kind of getting started, preaching is probably one of the, like, I guess, skills or the areas of ministry that younger ministers will put a lot of attention to because Younger ministers want to be good preachers. So when I was younger, I remember someone said to me, you have to preach about 200 to 300 sermons before you discover your own preaching voice because up until then, you're just kind of imitating other preachers and people that you've heard and you're trying to preach like them. But it takes about like 200 or 300 uh, sermons to preach like you. And uh, that means if a pastor is preaching most Sundays in a year, that probably takes about like four to six years, so congregations will have to be patient <laughs> for, a, for a younger minister to kind of fall into their, their own as a preacher. Uh, I looked up how many sermons I've preached uh, just at this church. So I've, I did serve a church before here, but uh, I looked up how many sermons I've preached at Good News Church in New York, and according to my files, this is my 480th sermon <laughs> preaching here. <laughs> so I tell, <clears throat> I know it feels like a lot, right? I, I tell people, uh, you know, I don't really remember most of my sermons, so I don't fault you if you don't remember most of my sermons either. I don't think you have to actually remember it. I, I look at it as in the moment, are you encountering God? And maybe you take something away, which is great, but mo most importantly, are you, uh, are you encountering God through the preaching of the gospel? That's, that's how I look at preaching, but I, I don't remember many of my sermons, but there are certain sermons I remember, and the ones that I often remember are my first ones. So for example, I remember the first time I ever preached, ever in my life. I was a senior in college, and I was part of a, this small uh, Korean church that had a small English-speaking congregation, and the small English-speaking congregation did not have uh, a pastor, and so the senior pastor would arrange guest speakers to come every week. And I was leading worship at the time, and I was setting up the chairs, and I was printing the bulletins. It was like a one-man show, right? I was doing everything back then. And <clears throat> uh, this one particular Sunday, I'm driving to church, getting ready to like set up all the equipment and the chairs and things like that. The senior pastor calls, and he says, hey, Sam, 
uh, I wasn't able to get a guest speaker today. He's like, can you do it? I was like, what? Right? My response is, what? Are you, are you kidding me? You really want me to like, preach to people? And he's like, yeah, aren't you planning on going to seminary? Uh, it'll be a good experience for you. So I said, all right. And I did it, right? I was leading a Bible study uh, on the book of Hebrews at the time. And so, you know, without any preparation, I still had to like lead worship and print the bulletin. So I, I was like thinking about, all right, what am I going to say? It's like I'm setting everything up. <laughs> and uh, I went up. And by the way, at this Eng- English congregation, I was the youngest one there. Everybody was older than me, right? I don't know what I was doing up there. I don't know what the senior pastor was thinking. But anyway, I went up and I preached uh, probably a pretty terrible sermon on Sabbath rest from the book of Hebrews, chapters three and four. I still remember that. My first time. I remember the first time I preached at um, Good News, not this Good News, but the Good News in New Jersey. Uh, this time, it was my first year in seminary, and Pastor John, who many of you know, but if you don't know him, he planted this church. Uh, what he would do is he wouldn't have like seminary students necessarily preach at a Sunday service, but at the congregational retreat, that's when like seminary students would have the opportunity to preach. And so I don't know if he, like, they were trying to save money on a guest speaker or if he thought, you know, it's better to have, like, new, newbies preach at a retreat versus a Sunday service. But uh, that's, that's how, uh, that's what ended up happening. So I got assigned one of the messages. And so to help my nerves, Pastor John thought it would be a good idea to set up a video camera right in front of me and record my very first sermon <laughs> preaching there. <laughs> and then as I was preaching, he had, like, a, he was, like, into photography back then. So he had like this nice camera and I'm like preaching and he's like, chick, 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 chick. I'm like, I'm like I, have, I was like, can you stop? <laughs> yeah. it's like, this is not making me feel good. So anyway, that's, that's the first sermon I preached at Good News uh, down in New Brunswick. And I remember that sermon. It was on Hosea 1. Uh, I remember the first sermon I preached at this church, okay, back in 2010. Uh, I was, I remember I was very nervous because I was like, oh, these are like really sophisticated New Yorkers who are like so smart (laughs) and so talented and so high achieving, right? So I was like, oh man, these New Yorkers are going to have such high expectations. Uh, They're used to listening to people like Tim Keller. And uh, so I come up and I have my notes on this like old, like wooden little lectern that uh, wasn't level. So every time you touch it, it would like shake. So I just remember preaching and like I had notes and I would like bump into the lectern and it would just start shaking and I'm like, oh man, don't fall, don't fall off, right? Um, like little things like that I, I remember. And I remember that sermon too. I remember preaching from 1 Kings 18 where Elijah goes to battle against the prophets of Baal. Uh, these first sermons are, or these sermons were memorable to me because they were my first ones. And I wish I could say they were memorable for other reasons. Um, you know, Pete, this is Peter's first sermon. This is actually the first sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And <clears throat> one of the reasons why it's so memorable actually has very little to do with Peter at all. Peter's first sermon is memorable because it was preached right after the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. People are filled with the Spirit. And what happens at the end? 3,000 people, they receive the word and they were baptized. That, that's a memorable sermon, right? After Peter's sermon, we are told that the people who heard it, they were cut to the heart. And I thought that's like such an interesting way to talk about the impact that this preached word had on those who heard it. Because it doesn't say like, and remember, these are, these are primarily Jewish people. 
And they're, they're used to living under a completely different paradigm when it comes to understanding and interpreting the Hebrew scriptures, or uh, for us, we might say the Old Testament. Luke, the author of Acts, he doesn't say their minds were changed, right? He says they were cut to the heart. And if you think about it, Peter is presenting this radical new way of understanding God, understanding his word, but also understanding his plan of redemption. And more than convincing their minds, which is, of course, a part of the transformation that takes place, at the core of it, it was their hearts that needed to be affected. Now, there's a lot, of, there's a lot in this passage I think that would be worth looking at. It's, it's a very long passage. Uh, in terms of how Peter interprets these passages in the Old Testament. And again, if you think about it, he's, a, he's offering an interpretation that would have been very radical and very new in light of the coming of Jesus, in light of his death and resurrection. But instead of looking at the content of what Peter is preaching here, I, I actually want to focus uh, indirectly on the aftermath of what happens after Peter preaches his sermon. Uh, in other words, what does this sermon show us about how God ultimately would bring 3,000 souls to himself? And I think we can look and point at a couple things, three things. First, the Holy Spirit sets the context. Second, the word is preached faithfully. And third, uh, you have the witness of the early disciples or, or the apostles, okay? So, Spirit word witness so first the holy spirit sets the context and if you remember from the passage last week a lot of strange things happened when the holy spirit came people were filled with the spirit they started to speak in other tongues and the way the passage ends was you know some people are amazed and perplexed other people uh they kind of mock and they say uh, oh they're they're filled with new wine in other words they're saying oh these people they're just drunk and uh, you know a very strange and unique event has just taken place with the coming of the Holy Spirit and people aren't really quite sure what to make of it right how do you how do you interpret what what you are seeing here these these strange things that are happening and that basically sets up the context for Peter's sermon because Peter stands up after that event and he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. So basically saying like it's, it's not the right time for people to be drinking. And then he goes on to explain what just happened through the prophet Joel. Now, if you've had any kind of exposure to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, maybe you know, maybe you're familiar that it can be a strange and disorienting experience for some folks. Uh, I've, I've seen people uh, speak in tongues. I've seen when people would like fall onto the floor. I've seen, um, you know, I've seen some strange things. And uh, when I saw it, I had no idea like what happened, right? It's a little bit disorienting. And, uh, you know, it's, it, because it's such a disorienting experience, it's not uncommon to maybe wrestle with what you're seeing, try to understand what's going on. It's not uncommon for people to wonder, is this something that is really generated by God or is this just people acting a little strange? And that's, that's exactly the same response that happens here. Some people, they're amazed with what they just saw and they conclude um, uh, like, wow, like some, um, something amazing is happening while other people, they're saying, oh no, people are just acting strange because they just drank too much wine. And I imagine we would probably have a mix of both kinds of people here. So uh, where do you go from there? If that's something that you see, if that's something that you witness, what do you do? And what Peter does is he opens up the Bible 
and he starts to reorient people according to what it says in the Word of God. This leads to our second point about the Word. Now, I am a little surprised that Peter himself isn't a little more surprised about what's going on, right? Because this is like the first time he's seeing this and experiencing it as well. And he seems ready to preach uh, this message as though he was like waiting for it to occur. And I, I don't know how to explain that. I don't know why. Uh, we, we do know that between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, like about 40 days, um, you know, Jesus spent a lot of time with his disciples. And so maybe during that time, he did a lot of Bible study with them. And he told them, oh, this is what the scriptures were really saying in view of my death and resurrection. So maybe that's why Peter is so prepared uh, to give the sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, whenever there is a work of the Spirit, uh, I think a good rule of thumb is it should always be in conjunction with the word, okay? If someone claims a uh, work of the Spirit that, goes against what the Bible says, then it wouldn't be the work of spirit because spirit and word go together. And I know New Yorkers can be a skeptical bunch and always looking at for the angle where, you know, people might be trying to manipulate others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because some skepticism can protect us from deception. But at the same time, uh, it shouldn't be at the expense of being open to how God can work and move through a person, through the person of the Holy Spirit. But how do we walk that balance well? And one way I think is we, we should know what the Bible says because spirit and word go together and the spirit will never contradict the word because the spirit will always shine a light on the person of Jesus. <laughs> Let me repeat that because I don't think anybody probably heard what I just said. And it's an important point. The Spirit will always shine a light on the person of Jesus. Uh, Peter's sermon, if you look at it, Peter's sermon uses the prophet Joel to show that God had promised to pour out his Spirit on all flesh and people would prophesy and see, see visions. So uh, Peter's saying, like, this is something that even the prophet Joel had talked about. But the point, his point and his focus, if you look at what he says afterwards, is not so much on these unusual things that happen, but it's what these unusual things are pointing to in terms of what God is doing here. Uh, the last verse in, from Joel says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so from there, Peter then transitions into a sermon. He takes that and he preaches the gospel message. And he says, starting in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Peter, he transitions from what Joel is saying about the spirit and just as the spirit himself, right, just as what the spirit himself would do, and he shines the light on Jesus, on what Jesus did. He doesn't talk about these people who were filled with the Spirit who looked like they were drunk or who were speaking on or speaking in other tongues. He focuses on the work of Jesus and where Jesus falls in, what Jesus did in terms of the work of uh, redemption and the plan of redemption. And then finally, there is this element of witness. So you see in verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that, we all are witnesses. And that word witness, I think, is an important word, especially in the context of the book of Acts. 
If you were here for the very first sermon in the series, the introductory sermon, I did talk a lot about witness. You have the spirit, you have the word, but you also have the witness of the apostles. Now, witnesses were extremely important in the ancient world because that's how you would verify the truth about something. That's why in a lot of these New Testament documents in like Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about how Jesus was raised from the dead, that's why it tells them, tells the readers like who was there. <laughs> so for example, Luke 24, there's two disciples walking on the road, or there's two men walking on the road to Emmaus and they encounter the risen Christ. And Luke pays careful attention. He says one of them was Cleopas. Why would he name one of the, pe the two men? Because Cleopas would probably have been known to people. He would have been an eyewitness. And Luke is kind of saying, hey, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, go ask Cleopas, right? Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. And so eyewitness testimony was incredibly important, especially when it came to verifying that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And, it, you know, it's important in the modern world as well. A legal proceeding requires the testimony of an eyewitness to bring a conviction uh, of a case. Whenever I officiate a wedding, there is a marriage certificate. And on that marriage certificate, you know what it requires? It requires two witnesses to sign it. Now, what it's saying is, look, I, I, I was there. I've seen these two people make these vows to one another, and I can testify to the fact that Yes, indeed, these two people made a promise to one another. And that's when it becomes a legally binding document. So even in the modern world, the, te the testimony of eyewitnesses are important. Here, Peter is also appealing to eyewitness testimony and saying, look, uh, we were there. We all saw evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead. How, how else do you explain a Jewish person completely changing their paradigm, the way they think, what they knew about what the scripture said, like completely um, changing it? Well, one easy way to explain that is, well, if you encounter someone who just rose from the dead, if you encounter the risen Christ, <laughs> that's a good way to be convinced, ah, okay, this is what the Bible was actually saying. Now, the role of witness, I think, is also what sets Christianity apart. If you think about it, Christianity could have grown not through the testimony of witnesses. It could have grown through these spiritual gurus or these experts. It could have grown through eloquent philosophers, and then you would get the impression that Christianity is uh, about being an expert and having maybe more knowledge than somebody else on a particular topic. But that's not how the church grew at all because Christianity is not a philosophical system or it's not about a set of rules that you litigate. Christianity is ultimately about good news. It's the news that God has broken into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died, was raised, ascended into heaven so that we might be saved, so we might have the forgiveness of sins, so that we might have this great promise of life and salvation. Now, also, think about this. Think about some of the first eyewitnesses in the Bible, uh, especially in the Gospel of Luke, right after, um, right right after Jesus is raised from the dead, who are the first eyewitness accounts? They're actually women. And in the ancient world, the testimonies of women were not even admissible in the ancient world. Then Jesus appears to his disciples who were, again, not like high-status people. They were fishermen and tax collectors, not highly educated, not highly respected in society. And yet it was their, through their testimony, through their witness, that Christianity grew. 
Christianity doesn't grow contrary to what we might think through these really skilled or expert um, philosophers or teachers or people who are really good at rhetoric. Christianity grew on account of eyewitness testimony from ordinary men and women. They had the spirit, they had the word, and they had their testimonies, their witness. These three things are what led the hearers of Peter's sermon to be, I would say, disturbed, but disturbed in a good way. They were cut to the heart because maybe they heard what Peter said about you were the ones who crucified uh, Jesus, even though he doesn't mean it in a literal way, like you actually like, nailed him to the cross, but figuratively saying it's because of, on account of your sin, Jesus was crucified. And so they're cut to the heart because they knew Jesus was both Lord and Christ. They were convicted of both of these things. And if both things are true, it leads to the very question that they asked. If this is true, if we were the ones who crucified Christ because of our sins, and if Jesus is both Lord and Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, the key question is, what shall we do then? Right? Peter's answer, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Now what does it mean to repent? Uh, it means you know you are the one who crucified Christ because of your sin. So there's an acknowledgement of sin. You acknowledge you're a sinner. You know it's a problem with respect to your relationship with God. But repentance doesn't end there. It's not just acknowledging you have a problem with sin, but more importantly, it's, it's kind of making a directional change. It's turning towards Jesus because you know he's the only one that can help you of your problem. Um, I thought about this illustration, and I think it's okay. Um, probably not great, but this is what I thought about. Uh, I thought about, like, what if you were at a beach and, like, you're facing the ocean and the waves are, like, large? Maybe it's, like, so large it's like a tsunami, right? And you see, like, this huge wave coming and it's about to overtake you. And it's, it's large enough where it can swallow you whole. And so you stand there, and what if you were to acknowledge, I'm not in a good spot. I have a problem. And you just stand there, right? <laughs> the wave's just going to swallow you up. What if you don't reorient yourselves towards something else and y you look at the waves like, oh, no, I have a problem. Right? That's, that's not repentance, right? Uh, what's going to happen? The wave is going to swallow you up. Repentance is not just saying, gee, I have a problem, but after seeing, oh, I have a problem, you see the wave coming, you turn around, <laughs> right, and you hold on to something, that can save you. Maybe it's like a post. Maybe it's like a boat. Maybe there's a building that you can run into for safety. I don't know, right? But you make an action and you move towards the very thing that will bring you salvation in that moment. That's what repentance is, right? Just acknowledging your sin uh, is an important step, but that's not the entirety of repentance. It's this directional change. And so when Peter says repent, that's what he's talking about to these 3,000 souls. Yeah, you are the one who crucified Christ, but just knowing that, acknowledging that, right, saying, oh, no, well, I'm not perfect. Nobody in the world is perfect either. That's actually not enough. That's not repentance. But there has to be this turn towards Jesus and this acknowledgement that he is the one that can save us from this deep problem that we have in our hearts. Second thing Peter says is be baptized. Why is baptism so important here? Why not just believe in your heart and then leave it at that? Why does he say be baptized? Well, baptism, it's an outward sign of the promise of God, and it is also a sign that you belong to a new family. Now, you remember, these are Jewish people here. So 
for Jewish people, the sign for them was a sign of circumcision. And that's kind of a way of saying, right, you belong to this covenant community. Here, Peter is telling them to be baptized because now they are about to become part of a new covenant community. In this covenant community, Peter says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So here, we see that baptism is a sign of the promise. And by the way, not just for adults, but even for our children. And perhaps one of the most important features in the age of the Spirit, these promises are not just for the people of Israel. But Peter also says it's for those who are far off. So you see, the act of baptism signifies these things. One, the expansion of the work of the Spirit, the expansion of God's plan of redemption to go beyond just uh, the people of Israel to all nations, but also this creation of this new family, this new covenant community, which we now call the church. So repent and be baptized. Now, there's both a subjective and objective aspect to our faith. Our faith does have to be rooted in, in something that is objectively true, whether we believe it or not, right? Whether we feel it or not. Jesus really had to have risen from the dead in history or else like the apostle says, then we are people to be pitied because then we're still condemned in our sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But there is also a subjective aspect to our faith where it has to be real to us on a personal level. It has to cut us to the heart to the point where we are ready to repent and, um, you know, if we haven't been baptized already, to be baptized so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promises of God. And in spite of maybe what some of us might feel living, uh, I don't know, in this time, in this city, in this place, we, friends, are still in the age of the Holy Spirit. I know when you, uh, you, you look for, if any of you ever look for a church in the future or visit a church, your first comment is probably going to be about the speaker, right? Um, uh, you know, I want to find a church that has a good speaker. I want to visit a church with a good speaker. I like the sermon. But I tell you, what we really need, right? I mean, Peter, was he a good speaker? I don't know, right? But I tell you, what we really need is the spirit, which we have, the word, which we have, and the testimonies of his people. And that's what Peter's sermon shows us. Those three things are here. And with those three things, after the very first sermon, 3,000 souls come to Christ. I wish that was my first sermon experience, right? It's not, but that's okay. Because at the end of the day, the work of the church is not contingent upon whoever's up here speaking. It's the spirit, the word, and the testimony of the church. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, the abundance that you have given to us. And we thank you that we are fully equipped um, to be in mission and to see fruit as we live in mission as a church, as we, um, as we seek to be faithful in uh, the mission that you have given to, to us. And sometimes it can feel like a daunting task, and I'm sure the early disciples uh, felt like it was a daunting task as well, but you encouraged them because it wasn't uh, based uh, upon them. 
you encourage them with your word, with your spirit, and you empower their very testimony uh, so that those who heard your word, those who heard your gospel, were cut to the heart and they repented and they were baptized and they turned to Jesus and received the forgiveness of sins. And we still live in that age. And you still call us to be in mission. And more importantly, we still have these things. Word, spirit, and testimony. So we pray, God, that you would give us uh, a greater conviction of the power of your spirit and the power of your word and the power of our testimonies. And because we are uh, a weak people and sometimes uh, we doubt and sometimes we struggle with our faith, uh, we know that this isn't some, a conviction that we can necessarily generate within ourselves, uh, but we have to see uh, you at work in powerful ways. Uh, so God, show us who you are. Show us your power. Show us your might. Show us your heart for your people uh, that we might grow in conviction of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>